thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. Today's reading is from Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. Um, at the beginning, it's on the, the request of James and John. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at the left of your glory. Jesus said, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup? I drink or be baptised with the baptism that I'm baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them then, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at the right or the left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, we are continuing this series entitled As Family We Go, an exploration of the family image that's used to describe the people of God or the church in the New Testament. Uh, And we've looked a little bit in the weeks previous about the fact that we've been called into this family by the gracious call of God, given promises by Him, and also been invited to participate in His grand purpose of restoring all things in the person of Jesus. That grand purpose is a little bit beyond us in our wisdom and strength, and God has in His uh, wisdom and foresight given us the resources that we require through the person of the Holy Spirit. Last week we looked a little bit uh, at the gifts of the Spirit, the things that the Spirit pours into us that are to be passed on to those around us, enabling us to participate in God's grand purpose. But I also mentioned last week that one aspect of the Spirit's work is to make us more like Jesus, as Romans 8 talks about, conforming us to the likeness of Christ, making us like Him. It's the work of spiritual DNA, just like physical DNA is what's kind of at work, making us look like our mom or our dad or our grandfather and making siblings look similar. So the Holy Spirit, when it brings new life, when He brings new life into us, makes us look like each other, not necessarily physically physically, but certainly in the things that we do. And it raises, I think, a fairly interesting question, which is, when are we most like Jesus? When are we most like Jesus? Uh, my two younger daughters both play representative soccer for Sutherland Shire, and, uh, you know, they train a couple of times a week, and one of the things that they do is they try these new kind of fancy foot maneuvers, right? The kind of the crossover plays and whatnot, and kind of similar to the things that, say, a Ronaldo or a, a Messi, you know you're a great soccer player if you only have one name, right, the, you know, the, that they do. And, and, you know, the girls, you know, they, they kind of try them, and every so often they kind of get them right, 
And for a moment, they look like fantastic soccer players. I mean, they're very good as it is, but they look fantastic. They look like a Messi. They look like a Ronaldo for a split second as they make that play. When do we look most like Jesus? When do we do things that people go, oh, that was Jesus. That looked, that looked like him. That sounded like him. When is it? Well, I reckon there's a whole bunch of answers. I mean, I think when we're at prayer, when we're at prayer and we are fully opened to our Heavenly Father, when we are dependent upon Him for His grace and resources, when we are aware of our insufficiencies, when we're focused on hearing from Him, then I think we are indeed a little bit like Jesus. I think when we forgive the grandest of all virtues, uh, we are like Jesus. I think when we love, we are like Jesus. But I think a case could be made that while all of those things and others, when we obey the Father and His will, we are like Jesus. And while there's a case for those, I reckon that it's a, there's a case to be made that we are most like Jesus when we serve. That the, the characteristic, the habit of a family of God that sets us apart is when we serve. When we serve one another, when we serve in general, we are actually most like Jesus. The passage that was just read for us in Mark chapter 10, uh, it's uh, part of Mark's uh, telling, obviously, of Jesus' life leading to his death. They're right outside the city of Jerusalem at this point in time. In chapter 11, they enter into the city uh, for Jesus' last week on earth. And in each of the times that Mark uh, has Jesus tell his disciples that he's going to die, it fo it's followed up by a misunderstanding. So in the passage just prior to that which Sandra read for us, we have the third prediction of Jesus' death. Uh, they're going to Jerusalem, presumably to celebrate the Passover, but Jesus on three occasions says, now there's more going on here. Uh, I will be handed over, uh, I will be mocked and flogged and ridiculed, I will be killed, and on the third day I will rise again. This is the story, this is what takes place. And each time Jesus mentions that, the disciples respond by completely misunderstanding. Uh, in Mark's gospel, we're told that Jesus always spoke in parables. He never said anything that wasn't in a parable, except when he begins teaching about his death, when we're told that he said this plainly to them. So the first time in chapter 8, Jesus tells them that he is going to die, and Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him, presumably to say, no, Lord, that's not how it works. The Messiah wins. The Messiah doesn't lose, so you need to kind of pull your head in and start talking about this the proper way, to which Jesus responds with a fairly harsh rebuke himself. The second time Jesus predicts his death, the disciples end up having an argument on the road about which one of them is the greatest. How good is that argument, right? Which of them is the greatest, and Jesus has to correct their teaching. Here, we have not only the prediction of Jesus' death, followed up immediately by James and John making a relatively outrageous request to be Jesus' right-hand men in the kingdom. Now, finally, they've actually acknowledged that Jesus is going to usher in the kingdom. Uh, they've got a little bit of faith. The kingdom's coming, it's coming in Jesus, but now we've got to get in and get the best seats. And so they ask, can we sit on your right and your left? And Jesus asks a question, which I'm pretty sure was meant to be rhetorical. In other words, you shouldn't answer it because it demands a no as an answer, right? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Can you drink the wrath of God? Can you stand before a righteous God on behalf of humanity? 
can you be baptized in the baptism I'm baptized with, the death that I'm about to face? And they say, yes, yes, we can. Okay, nothing like confidence, right? And confidence is key. And yet Jesus says, well, okay, you will. You will drink the cup and be baptized in this sort of a way, uh, perhaps talking about the, the fact that they too will be persecuted. But he says, I can't give those seats away. The 10 hear about it. They're a little bit cranky. And Jesus takes the opportunity to teach, to teach once again about the kingdom of God. And in the context, he's talking about his death. He's on the road to Jerusalem. In that context, he says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you must serve. Even I, he says, the son of man, the title for himself, he says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to, make, and to become a ransom for many. This is the fundamental component. And, and I think the link with Jesus' death and service is not accidental. In John chapter 13, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, that takes place the night before Jesus died. Very close proximity to one another. I mean, Jesus could have served his disciples at any point in his ministry, but he chooses to do it at that point, just before he dies. And I don't think, again, it was an accident that he takes off his outer garment, puts on a towel around his waist, and washes his disciples' feet just before he goes to the cross to serve them. In Philippians 2, 5 to 11, a passage that I come back to frequently, Paul says to the Philippian church, I want your attitude to one another to be the same as Christ Jesus, who, being very nature God, did not consider his equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but emptied himself, became nothing, and took on the form of a servant. He became obedient even unto death. The greatest act of service is Jesus' death on behalf of his disciples and those who follow today, you and I. And yet, sometimes we can struggle with this idea of what service actually is, don't we? I mean, the disciples certainly misunderstood and part of it was because of the way in which they conceived of honor and shame. Now, some of you might be familiar with the way that an honor and shame culture works. Uh, but in the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, there's a fairly important understanding about honor. And that is that it was a finite resource. In other words, there was only so much honor to go around. Which meant that if I gained honor, then by definition, someone lost it. That's how it worked. It's like there was a thousand credits of honor, and we could only distribute it in so many ways, and when I got more of it, someone loses out. So nearly every social interaction was designed, it was competitive, trying to gain honor in the interaction. And when someone else gained, someone else lost. And so this idea of service really messed with the disciples' heads. I mean, Jesus is basically saying, if you want to become great, if you want to be honored, then you need to do things that are shameful. You need to serve. You need to place yourself at the bottom. That's how the economy of God's kingdom works. That's the essence of it. You can see why the disciples just didn't quite get it. You can also see why the ten were so indignant. Because James and John were not just seeking a little extra honor for themselves. They were seeking honor for themselves that therefore detracted from the ten. If there was a limited amount of honor, then they were gaining more and the others were receiving less. You can see why they had a little cranky moment and why Jesus takes the chance to teach yet again about service. 
But I think we misunderstand service as well, don't we? Now, sometimes it can be kind of Christianese, you know, kind of Christian churchy language, that when we say service, what we mean is volunteering in ministry. That's service. And that's fairly important. Uh, you don't need me to tell you that the church runs on more than just the pastoral staff and the ministry teams. Uh, we need people to be involved, and I think it pr provides a fairly helpful training ground to, to learn how to serve and all of those sorts of things. But if we reduce service to just volunteering in church ministries, then, well, it's kind of narrow. Or we see service as some sort of menial sort of task. Right? Service is doing something behind the scenes or something kind of relatively unimportant, and that doesn't really help us figure out service either. But I think perhaps the biggest thing we struggle with is actually the fact that we're very familiar with service in the service industry. And I think this is how this works. I don't know a great deal about uh, economies, but essentially there's agriculture, manufacturing, and the service industry. And in advanced economies like those in the West, the service industry has become the most significant part of the economy. It's no longer agriculture or manufacturing that's so critical. That's brought us wealth, and with wealth and affluence has come complexity, and with complexity has come the need for more services. And so nearly all of us would be involved in the service industry, whether it's health, you know, doctors to fitness instructors and fitness programs and dietitians and chiropractors, uh, all the way through to education, not only teachers in schools and high schools and universities, but in TAFEs and all sorts of different ways. Uh, anyone in financial services that are helping people either invest money or figure out their tax returns or those sorts of things it has to do with people who mow your lawn and fix your plumbing and make sure the electricity works. It has to do with those who are involved in, uh, in every aspect of healthcare and on and on and on it goes. Nearly all of us, whether it's in marketing or hotels or resorts or whatnot, entertainment, nearly all of us are involved in the service industry. At one level, you think, therefore, we should understand service better than anyone else. I mean, most of us spend most of our time serving other people. And yet, I think the implication of the significance of the service industry is actually to reinforce for us that we deserve to be served. Because that's how our entire economy is wrapped up. People serving us, whether it's at the local cafe, whether it's our chiropractor or our teachers or whatever it might be, and we end up kind of having this reinforcement of, you were worth it. You deserve it. Well, I'm a busy man. I deserve to have someone mow my lawn. That way it gets mowed, as opposed to when I did it. It never got mowed until people were really cranky, and then I got cranky because my lawnmower didn't work very well. Right? It's a, this is a good thing for everybody involved. So we end up kind of grappling with what it means to serve. What does it mean to be people who serve? And I think reflecting on uh, Jesus's service for us, I think is fairly helpful. Because it seems to me that what Jesus has done in his service is that he has applied power on the behalf of other people. That's service. To use our influence, to use our power and networks and wealth and skills and gifts and ability for other people. Which is exactly what Jesus did. We sang it earlier that he has paid our debt well, his act of service was using his great resources to pay our debt. 
Uh, His great service was to use his, shall we say, status as the Son of God on our behalf. And so we are called to much the same thing, to use our power, to use our influence for those around us. Uh, we're uh, planning a, a trip as a family. We're going to go to New Zealand uh, in, uh, in April. Figured it's the last time we can go away before Amara starts the HSC and we can't leave the house anymore. So we figured we'd get out one more time. And uh, we went to the, the travel agent, part of the service industry, and felt that we had been well served because the, the young man who was serving us seemed to use his influence, his networks, the deals that he had access to on our behalf. So he got us a good deal on this, that, or the other thing, and he gave us some good advice on this, that, or the other thing, and he made a couple phone calls and swung a couple deals, and I know that they're trying to make money in that as well, but we walked out feeling like we had been served because he had used what resources he had for our benefit. Now, we were paying for it, so that kind of works out, but that's essentially what we're called to do. This becomes the critical habit for the family of God to be people who are marked by our service. And service really can't be something that we do in one or two hits. It's got to be something that is spread across our our, our entire lives. I thought about it a little bit this week. I don't know if this really works, but it's kind of like Vegemite. Unlike most uh, North Americans, I was taught by an Australian how to properly eat Vegemite. Most most North Americans, when confronted with a jar of Vegemite, treat it like peanut butter, right? (laughs) A big, thick slob of it, and then they eat it and they die, right? Um, Or at least they say to themselves, I don't understand Australian culture at all. But I was taught that you take a little bit, you scrape it all over the toast. You don't kind of put it on a corner. You don't dip it in like some sort of, you know, dip. It's meant to be scraped thinly everywhere. And I think to some degree, service is meant to be spread thinly everywhere. I'm not sure if that works for anybody. But nonetheless, it's this idea, and it's distasteful sometimes. How about that? Now that could work, right? This is part of what we're called to. We're not called to just serve in one area or another area or in particular situations. We're called to serve everywhere. In every situation, everywhere God sends us, we are called to serve. This is part of what we're called to. And can I just say that this means that this is a duty for us? It's a duty for us. It's not a non-negotiable. We can't say, listen, I love the prayer, fantastic, I love prayer, and um, I do a lot of forgiving, but the service thing, mm, it's not really me. If you are a follower of Jesus, service is really you, trust me. It is what we are fundamentally called to do, it is how we are most like Jesus. When we are using all that we have been given for the benefit of others, we are most like Jesus. It's a non-negotiable for us. We must be doing it. And yet it's not just a duty because it actually comes out of our sense of identity. Uh, One of the reasons I think Jesus was able to serve the way he did was because he was completely assured of who he was as the Son of God. He was completely assured. And because his identity as the Son of God was complete, nothing that happened to him could take away from that identity or add to it. He didn't have a deficit of his identity where he was trying to fill it up with the accolades of those around him. He didn't have a deficit where if if something bad happened to him or he was mocked or humiliated, that he would somehow feel less of himself. His, His identity as the Son of God was so complete that it didn't matter what else happened. 
uh, when uh, I, co- I coach a girls' team down at uh, George's River, and when the, the girls were younger in particular, you know, we'd play various games and training and whatnot. Let me put it this way. I was confident enough in my identity as a soccer player to not get too competitive with the under seven girls. Right? If I won the game, I didn't go home going, champion, huh? How good am I? And I didn't go home devastated if one of the girls took the ball off me in a, in a drill. I didn't chase them down and hack them down and take the ball back very often, right? <laughs> I, was, I was, shall we say, my identity as a soccer player was, it was complete, at least with the under sevens, right? I didn't need to win, and it didn't matter if I lost. It didn't matter because my identity in that case was complete. Now, we struggle with this all the time, don't we? Because generally speaking, our identity as sons and daughters of God are not complete. And so the the honor that we can gain or the shame that might come our way, the things that are below us or the things that are above us, we really want those things to prove ourselves, I think. But when our identity as sons and daughters is secure, then it doesn't matter. Jesus was able to face humiliation because he knew who he was as the Son of God. And it didn't matter if people mocked him, if if he dies on the cross, a humiliating, reputation-destroying death. It wasn't about the pain so much as it was about destroying a reputation. He could face that because he knew that his reputation was really linked to who he was as the Son of God and nothing else. He didn't need the accolades of people. He didn't need his disciples to pump him up and say, you are amazing. He didn't need the religious leaders to accept him. He didn't need the people to thank him. He was complete in his identity. And for each one of us, if we are to be those who serve, we need to find our identity in Jesus. We need to understand that we are first and foremost and entirely sons and daughters of God. And therefore, we can serve because who we are is separate from and independent from the things that happen around us. We need to understand, I think, thirdly, that when we serve, we are actually functioning in the very economy of God. In Isaiah chapter 42, There's a passage that's known as one of the servant songs, Uh, one of the the passages in particular that the early church looked to to explain Jesus. Listen to how this begins. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Here is my servant, says the Lord, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. This is the task of the servant of the Lord to bring justice to the nations. You know, Vicky prayed for the situation in Syria. Can you imagine the wisdom that would be required to bring justice to that region? To determine who was right and who was wrong? Or who was mostly right and who was mostly wrong? And if you had the sufficient wisdom to unpick that knot, Would you have sufficient power and influence to actually bring about the reconciliation that was required? The servant of the Lord will bring justice to the nations. And here's his methodology. He will not shout or cry out 
or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That's not the usual methodology for bringing justice. How will the servant of the Lord bring justice? By whispering. And by making sure that the bruised reed is not broken. And that the smoldering wick that is inevitably going to go out is not snuffed out early. And through these small, simple, gentle ways, justice will come. Service is a whisper in our world. By serving you, by serving others, by finding our place to apply what God has given us for the good of those around us, we participate in the whisper of God to bring about justice to the world. As we seek to care for those that are bruised, those that are smoldering, we participate in the overall economy of God. This is how He will bring things about. Yes, God can bring things about through an earthquake or a volcano, but His traditional, normal way of operating is through the still, small voice. We participate in that as we serve I'm not sure if there's agriculture or manufacturing in the kingdom of God, but there's definitely service. We are caught up in the ultimate service industry because this is how the economy of God works. And therefore, part of our goal must be to practice service everywhere God sends us. Everywhere God sends us. And sometimes we get paid for our acts of service. How good is that? And other times, well, we don't. But everywhere we go, our attitude and our perspective must be to use what God has given to us for those around us. Because when we do that, not only are we most like Jesus, but when we do that, we bring the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. What it means to be family the family of God is in part to recognize that we have been called into existence by His grace, granted incredible promises, that we have been resourced and equipped for the task at hand, invited to participate in His grand plan to restore all things. But in terms of the practices that set us apart, service must be at the top. And while we pray, and while we obey, and while we forgive, and while we love, and while we do all those other things that reflect the person and character of Jesus, we are most like Him when we serve. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. I am your teacher and Lord. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have served you, so you must serve one another. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, 
who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage but opened his hands and humbled himself and took the form of a servant and being found in likeness as a human being he became obedient even unto death and death on a cross let us be those who take up the non-negotiable habit of service who find our identity more and more securely found as sons and daughters of God who have discerned the economy of God in the world and who set our sights on bringing the kingdom to bear on earth as it is in heaven I want to take a moment to pray for us as Drew and the team come and lead us in a couple of songs of response I want to pray that we would know what it means to be the family of God and would be enabled to serve. So will you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have called us in your grace and mercy to be part of your family. We thank you that through your Holy Spirit we have been incorporated into the family of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the wonderful promises that we have because of him. We thank you that you have invited us to participate with you in restoring all things. And thank you for the great and wonderful resources of the Holy Spirit. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would complete in us the work that you have begun, that we might know deeply and profoundly that we are indeed daughters and sons of our Heavenly Father. And that as that identity is complete, that we would be released and freed to serve. We thank you for the blessings and resources that you have granted to us, the things that we experience in our day-to-day -day lives, and pray that we might be enabled to use those for those around us. And in so doing, that we might become more and more conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we ask these things. Amen.